and welcome to the Own It podcast. I'm Iona Bain, founder of the Young Money blog and author of a new book called Own It. My co-host is Simon Bain, a business and finance journalist with 30 years of experience. He also happens to be my dad. And as we're living under one roof during lockdown, we thought we'd get together and try to have some funny, frank and fascinating conversations about the world of finance. So that's what we're doing. Thanks so much to everybody who's been saying really nice things about us so far. And I want to say a particular thank you to Roger Edwards, who gave us a lovely shout out on his own podcast. It's called Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. And I'll make sure to include a link to it in my show notes. Thank you very much, Roger. Now, I know last week I said we were going to cover the issue of pensions in this week's episode, and I bet you've been barely able to sleep since then for all the excitement that you felt at that prospect. Because let's face it, pensions is a thrilling subject, but you're just going to have to hold your excitement in for a bit longer because it's budget week. Yes, it's that time when the Chancellor gets up and tells us what he is going to do with the nation's finances. Now, we were going to have a chat about the budget this week, but it turns out you guys want us to go deep on this stuff. You really want to hear what we have to say about it. I got a message from Henry who said, really enjoying your podcast, Iona. Looking forward to hearing what you and your dad have to say after this week's budget and what it means for young people's finances and investing. Well, Henry, we're going to give you what you want. This is a whole podcast dedicated to the budget and what it means for you. Now, I'll be speaking to Rishi Sunak, Chancellor. No, no, I won't be. Maybe sometime in the future. Um, But I've got the next best man for the job, Simon Bain. He's covered approximately 4,322 budgets in his time. Well, not that many, but he's covered a lot. He certainly knows his way around a budget. So he's going to give us that broader perspective on the budget as an event and past budgets. We're going to take a little trip down budget memory lane, if you like. And we're also going to drill into the details of this year's budget and try and get past the kind of hype and spin and superficial coverage that you see in some places. So I really hope it's informative and helpful and a little bit entertaining as well. So here's my chat with Dad about the budget, recorded the day after the budget, after I've done an awful lot of talking about the budget, not least on the BBC News Channel, which is why I'm sounding a little bit hoarse now. Anyway, here's our chat. Right, so we're recording this the day after the budget and the Chancellor outlined his three-part plan. Now, let's go through each part and talk about how it affects the good people listening and uh, watching Um, and also talk about your experience with budgets along the way because it's fair to say you are a bit of a budget veteran. I suppose I am. Yeah. How many do you think you've done? Um, I must have done getting on for 25 that is yeah. That is scary. Mm, it was. I, <laughs> Some years more than others. I bet. Well, we will come on to that very soon. Mm. Um, but firstly, let's talk about the uh, first part of Rishi's three-part plan to provide the support that the economy needs to get through the remainder of the pandemic. So we already had like so many things in this budget. Uh, the indication beforehand mm. trailed in the press mm. that we would have an extension of the furlough scheme until September this year. Yes. And we also had the announcement of various uh, restart grants and loans for businesses. Sure. And I think it's a bit concerning mm. that we are needing to have this support continue for much of 2021, even though it is reassuring that that isn't all going to be withdrawn overnight. 
Yes, I think it shows that they are still focused on the same sort of um, strategy of avoiding a cliff edge fall in unemployment mm. come the summer. Um, that doesn't look good. Mm. Politics is very much about what looks right, let's be honest. Um, ditto the, the most vulnerable businesses. Yeah. Um, they would have found it much harder, obviously, to have that uncertainty. Um, arguably, they could have done with more certainty and it could have been yeah. announced well before this in terms yeah. of the hospitality sector. However, I think, and it is concerning, isn't it, that... Uh, it's it's a it's a set of measures um, designed for full on lockdown, which hopefully um, we shouldn't be needing. No. Given that the um, the figures on the on the on COVID are so much better. Absolutely, and also it was very telling that the restart grants for hospitality businesses were much higher than other kinds of businesses. Um, and he said in passing that this was because there would continue to be restrictions that would affect businesses. Mm. So you are getting a clue there of what the great British summer might look like. It's mm. certainly not going to look like a normal British summer. There's going to potentially be distancing limits on how many people can go into venues. And we may even have immunity passports because we know that there's a consultation underway in government headed mm. up by Michael Gove, who's very pro-immunity passport. Yes. And one would have to hope that that doesn't discriminate too much against younger people who might not have had the chance to have the vaccine Well, by exactly. The and uh, you do rather wonder why when there's only 10 people a day being admitted into intensive care with COVID in the UK over 80 and everybody's been immunised pretty much um, mm. that young people are going to be subject to these kind of restrictions in the places where they most benefit from having open. Yeah, not just as consumers but also as employees because sure. we know that hospitality and retail are huge employers of younger people. Of so it really does remain to be seen whether mm. this extra money is actually going to help keep these businesses alive and help them keep employing young people. Indeed. So that was the first part of the plan. The second part was about fixing the finances. What did that mean to you? What did you take from, from the language that we heard yesterday? Well, it reminds us of David Cameron fixing the roof while the sun shines, Ooh, doesn't it? Oh, yes. We heard you that know, one many a time. Every Tory government must be seen to be um, putting their financial house in order. Mm. Um, so he's got to be seen to be doing that. And to some extent, he has to do that. A lot of argument between economists over the timescales. Some people say don't start at all. Uh, you know, until way down the track. So he's compromised, hasn't he? He said, well, yes, we're going to do it, but it's not going to kick in for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, uh, he he's wants to demonstrate that he's on the case, but he's not hopefully going to sh choke off growth, the growth that we desperately need mm. in the economy rebounding mm. um, before, you know, it's had a chance to take root and then the taxes come in. But of course, the gamble he's taking is that that growth will be strong enough to absorb those tax rises, yes. both from companies and from individuals, yes. um, really not that far down the road. Mm, absolutely. So let's talk about those uh, tax rises because they are referred to as stealth taxes or fiscal drag. Mm. Um, and that might slightly confuse people who are not terribly you know au fait with tax policy yeah, which i don't yeah. blame them if they don't take that much of an interest in it <laughs> no. but what does the whole concept of fiscal drag mean <sighs> well unfortunately it's all back to politics again isn't yeah. it every so often governments have to make certain promises that they're not going to raise certain taxes mm. and we've had the tory promise that they won't raise all the basic taxes including income tax um, during a parliament which is a hostage to fortune it's bound to be if, if something like this happens yes so what do they do they find ways around it mm. and the ways around it are basically not changing and not increasing the allowances we get against tax mm. so that the personal allowance which is currently twelve and a half thousand is the amount we don't pay tax on mm. um, it should go up each year because of inflation um, we should be able to earn a little bit more and have a little bit more of an allowance if that allowance is frozen then we're paying that little bit more tax uh, on the income that we, we get so that's how it works 
Um, and the other one is the, the higher tax threshold at which you start paying 40%. Mm. And that too is frozen after this year, which means that people in the 40s earning 40,000 bracket, 40 to 50, will probably get to 50 that bit quicker. Mm. And suddenly they're paying 40% on that on that portion over 50. Yes. Um, as opposed to seeing the higher um, tax threshold go up ahead of them, as it were. Yes, yes. So there is uh, a debate as to how much this will affect lower earners versus middle earners because it will mean more people being dragged into tax and if you are not earning that much then tax feels you know a lot a lot more painful for you than those on 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 higher earnings but then again even if you are maybe slightly above the average salary perhaps you are a young professional who's worked really really hard and you're at that point in your life where you're just getting into your stride and now you are facing these higher taxes i do wonder if it's going to be a bit of a punch in the face for millennials particularly those now getting into their 30s and at a time in their life when they thought they might become a little bit more established and such sure sure no that's very fair i think the point about low earners is we should probably remember and indeed the higher earners that uh, to be fair to the coalition that was a big priority to push the allowances up. Yes. Um, they went up very substantially to, to, to 10,000 from, mm. I think it was seven originally mm-hmm. back in 2010. Um, and they've since gone up to 12 and a half, which is, which is well above what one would have expected actually. Mm. So arguably they have reached a sort of higher point, uh, relatively speaking, than they were a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And the same applies to higher rate, which is at 50, was pushed up quite sharply from, from 43 or so. Mm. Um, as somebody living in Scotland, I'm only too well aware of that, as the higher rate has been stuck and frozen rigidly at 43 uh, mm. for the last few years. Um, I'm not saying it affects me these days, but... Uh, but it affects a lot of people in it's Scotland. It's quite a significant difference. Yes, yes, and maybe the difference is narrowing slightly, but only slightly, between Scotland and England now with these changes. But we also uh, saw other thresholds being frozen, perhaps ones that will affect young people a bit less, such as the freeze on capital gains, um, the lifetime allowance for pensions. Although you could also argue that over the long term, these policies might affect those who are saving and investing for many, many years. And there is an argument about um, if you freeze the lifetime allowance, which if you know, just to explain quickly, is basically the total amount that you can contribute into your pension over your lifetime. And still get the tax relief. And still get that tax relief from the government. By freezing that and therefore, you know, effectively reducing the level that you can put in and get that tax relief, then you are discouraging people from saving into a pension. Yeah, I mean... Do do you think that's a credible argument, though? um, People lower down, you know, and the the younger end uh, in their their careers, probably not. But obviously the people who are affected, it's... um, it, it is significant. And the example that's most often quoted is the doctors, mm. um, many of whom stopped working because they couldn't just carry on having their pension automatically, mm. um, you know, giving them the benefits they had before. Uh, and there's not many ways around it. So some of them actually stopped working, so they stopped paying into the their fund, mm. um, which does seem a, a bizarre sort of consequence. Yes. And especially after the pandemic, one has to question whether they've really thought that through mm. in terms of the, the amount of money they're saving. Yes. It does sound to me like very much one of those treasury-driven policies that we've seen over the years. It's more of the same. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the usual targets in a way. Um, there's not a lot of new thinking on that coming through, frankly. No, no. Although you could say that one of the upsides of this budget was that, you know, to use the word that Rishi was very fond of yesterday, it was honest in Mm. the sense that 
I think that even though these taxes are described as stealth taxes and that people might not really notice them, you know, nothing gets past the media, really. And I yeah. think that he understands that, the Treasury understands that, and, and that people like you and me are going to make it very clear to the public what all this means. Sure. Um, whereas in the past, you have seen this big difference between what's actually said in, in the House of Commons mm at 12.30 by the Chancellor mm. when he stood up at the dispatch box and what's in the small print afterwards yes, yes. that's put out online, there can be quite a big difference between the two. Yeah, a few points there. I mean, the leaking for a start, I mean, that oh. is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. That we knew absolutely everything that was in this budget. And then there's a point you made about the influence of the media, which you could look back to Philip Hammond's famous attempt to raise taxes for the self-employed. I mean, this is the interesting thing about the budget. It's not just a, an exercise in economic analysis, so, and it's not just about personal finance. It is so political. Mm. And, of course, people will react to it and shape the conversation around it in a very political way. Mm. And in years gone by, that has been the preserve of the newspapers. And as you mentioned there, the example of Philip Hammond trying to raise national insurance yes. contributions for the self-employed, that got such a huge backlash mm. from the red tops like The Sun saying mm. it was a tax on white van man. Yep. And they had to they had to U-turn on yes. it. Whereas now I think that what's happening is you're seeing instant post-match analysis yes. on Twitter. Even as the budget is going on, people are offering their views <laughs> and commentary. And I mean, I'm not immune from this. I feel that pressure to kind of get in there with my knee-jerk reaction, just like everybody <laughs> yeah, else. Yes. But, but it does mean that actually sometimes we might be getting quite a distorted view of what the budget is because there's this rush for for instant analysis online. Sure. I mean, two things. One, you know, you used to get a lot of very sort of um, sexy sounding policies and projects being brought forward by government, especially when they were well into their, their term, like the Labour government was in for a long time. And, uh, you know, to address certain sort of trendy issues. And when you actually look up the book, mm. you see that it's going to benefit sort of 10 companies you know yeah, yeah, over yeah. the next 20 years i mean <laughs> yeah. the, the actual shifting the dial doesn't come into it you know yeah. but it sounds great on budget day yeah so in that sense honesty is good and the other point is he's having a budget extravaganza of some kind of tax day isn't he Ooh, at the end of the month be still my beating heart well you know you, well, it, well it better be because you know what he's going to come up with don't you Raising national insurance for the self-employed and you'll have to pay it. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's coming back for sure. I thought that we'd yeah. escaped that. No, no, there's been dark hints and leaks from the Treasury over that for several weeks now. Oh God, the because sword of Damocles is still dangling over our heads. Because of then. the grants people have had, of mm. course, he's going to want us to pay them back at some point. Mm. So, but I mean, there also might be something in the realm of, say, pensions tax relief, which has been tweaked and tinkered with and messed about with for yeah. so many years. Yeah. If they could just make up their mind that they do want to reform it, you know, I mean, we all know the tax system is well overdue reforming. Yeah. I mean, it could be they have the confidence that they're going to be in power for a little while mm. um, to start tackling one or two of these things. And mm -hmm. that would be a good thing because we have a tax code of, you know, millions of pages. No wonder nobody understands it. Yeah, the tax system is overly complicated and it is in desperate need of reform. Although um, there was no change to the ISA allowance no change to the lifetime ISA, which I was very disappointed by, and I really hope the Treasury will see sense on that. If you want to hear more, then you can hear about that in our previous episode. Yes. Um, but there was not that kind of disruptive change to the savings landscape, which probably is is not a bad thing, even if it true. even if it means another opportunity passed for and another opportunity well, missed for a reform. Not like some of the historic budgets. 
Yes. So I think, you know, my, my budget history is, is not as extensive as yours, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I think the most notable budgets in my time have been the ones between 2014 and 2016, yes. when George Osborne kind of announced all these changes to pensions and ISAs, yes. some of them good, some of them not so good. Mm. But I think he has definitely been one of the most, if not the most transformative chancellors of modern times. And then we have Philip Hammond, who is, yeah, yeah. And now we've got Damp, Damp Squib doesn't cover it, oh, really. Oh, my God, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Nobody, really. Yeah. Um, but you've got a much longer frame of reference for chancellors than I have. Well, I suppose I'd probably go back to um, 1988, actually, in terms of, uh, Year of my <laughs> being birth. on budget duty. <laughs> so how old you are, um, you've just given that away. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> so there we are. It must be over 20, 25 budgets, clearly. Um <laughs> Plus the ones that you know we've been covering a bit over the last year or two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean the, the Tory budgets of the of the eighties and nineties, um, you, you know, were quite sort of dramatic in many ways, um, because of what was raging out there in the economy at different times. But it's quite strange to look back. I mean, income tax fell from twenty nine p to twenty five p in nineteen eighty eight. You know, we take for granted it's been at this nice low level of 20p forever. Yeah. Um, so that, that must was, have been seen as a big giveaway at the time. Well, it, well, it was, yeah. um, but also a, a big boost to the housing market. But it became known as the Lawson boom mm. because prices rose by 20% in a year. So we were in territory that people, <clears throat> you know, of your age have never sort of witnessed really with those kind of levels of inflation. Although and, we and are potentially in for well, inflation like that in the that, future that's right and the other funny thing is looking back to the 90s how much you know really we were just obsessed with whether cigarettes and and booze were going to go up and petrol duty you know this was the main focus of budget coverage it still <clears> is <throat> in me. a way you do still see a lot of the tabloids focused yes. on those kinds of duties i suppose i suppose you do but yeah. there's been so little change in them in recent years i suppose it's it's been not yeah. much to look out for you know it'd be dead no. unpopular changing them that's why well that's true but nothing to see here as far as that goes mm. um corporation tax <clears throat> excuse me 1997 was cut by 2% to 31. And now we're outraged to think it's going back to 25. Yes, yes. Um, so again, we have a much lower tax economy these days than we did mm. when the chancellors were really taking the axe to those things. Mm. Um, but of course, that was Gordon Brown's first budget in 97. Oh, yeah. And he also notoriously um, messed around with our pension funds by doing something on the day nobody noticed. Mm. Um, until we all looked up the small print um, a few days later, pretty much. Um, he abolished dividend tax credits for pension funds. So what? That that sort of hold pension fund um, finances, the old-fashioned workplace pension funds. Really? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go into the details now, but it did. It made them, uh, you know, a lot shorter of cash over the long term and had their assets had to work a lot harder. Wow. And it really did make a big difference to workplace pensions. Um, I, I did not know that. Yeah, but it was a, it was a, it was a great sort of windfall at the time. Mm, um, mm. And then... In the following year, he introduced the um, Working Families Tax Credit, which has become much more controversial in recent times in terms of yes. its cost and its you know, effectiveness in targeting the poverty. Which is one reason why it was replaced by universal credit, which right. in some right. respects has been panned, but it was panned. trying to solve that problem, mm, that's right. Mm. Um, and just a third one with Brown the following year after that, uh, he introduced a new uh, 10% starting rate of tax, which right. was a sort of attempt to deal with that problem of the lower, lower pay, which was interesting. And he also abolished mortgage interest relief, 
which the old homeowners took for granted that when they were paying off their mortgages they were going to get a nice big bung from the government when they were doing so um, that disappeared in in 2000 mm, so there have been some much more radical changes in many ways over the years um, and as you mentioned George Osborne absolutely takes the biscuit yeah suddenly people were able to access their pension funds and spend them on as it was famously criticized a new Lambo Yes. <laughs> so the pensions minister at that time, uh, Sir Steve Webb. Sir Steve Webb. Perhaps we'll get him on the podcast at some point. He Why said, not? "Why not? Why not?" A friend of the podcast. Definitely. Um, he said uh, that he wasn't worried that people would go out and spend the money on a Lamborghini, and if they did, then hey, that's their right. Um, I do think that overall it was good in terms of, you know, breaking that stranglehold that annuities had on pensions because. Until George Osborne yes. introduced these changes, really the main way that you would get income from your pension in retirement was through an annuity. And these were notoriously yes. bad value. But it was filtering your, your wealth that you built up through, through an insurance company, through a pensions company, which was paying you really what it wanted. There was, there was competition, but people didn't tend to realise there was competition. Yeah, yeah. They got what, the, what their pension company said they could get. Mm-hmm. But if we come on to something that has been a feature of many budgets in the past and will feature in many budgets to come, housing. As things stand, we have the stamp duty holiday extended for a few more months, ostensibly to get round all the logjam that buyers have been experiencing because there's been such a rush for houses and solicitors are not known for their <laughs> utmost efficiency. They operate in a different time zone, don't they? Yes. We can we can definitely testify to that. Um, and I don't really see how extending the stamp duty holiday does anything to resolve that. You're still going to have this cliff edge and you're still going to have people having problems processing their house purchases. <laughs> uh, and it's just contributing to a very volatile market with a lot of uncertainty. And it's really not doing anything to resolve those underlying issues that we have with the housing market. No, <clears throat> funnily enough, I think that takes us back to... Um, the Gordon Brown era, actually, mm. because um, the, the sort of boom years where we were told everything was always going to be boom and never bust um, relied so much on rising house prices. And I noticed from a, a column that I wrote, actually, at the end of 2008, mm-hmm. um, that we had been taking £10 billion a year out of our housing wealth, supposed wealth, um, and it was all being used to fuel the economy mm. because it was being spent. Yeah. And that was how the UK economy worked. The consumer powered it. You know, not business investment. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden that was slashed to two and a half billion, slashed by mm. three quarters mm. um, when the, the, the crunch and the crash all came on. Yeah. Um, and, and so it just showed how much we relied on that sort of UK thing mm. of housing wealth is, is crucial. And, and no government seems prepared to accept the idea of house prices falling. No. And one of the commentators yesterday was saying, would it have been such a bad idea if house prices, especially in expensive areas like London, yeah. were to have fell during this year, yeah. giving young people a little bit more hope? Policy is all directed towards propping up prices because there are so many interests involved in that and so many people who already are mm. in housing mm. and do not want to see the value of, of their housing wealth fall. Mm. And mm. I just think that's how it always will be. And there's a lot of kind of idealistic utopian commentary around the housing market that envisages this parallel universe in which people can get just as good a deal renting their home as they would buying a home and that they can have the choice and then they're not going to be disadvantaged by going for renting over home ownership. And I just think, 
if you can point me to an economy in which this is working and this is a reality, then let's have a look at it. We're seeing in Berlin that rent caps aren't working. Right. We have seen so many attempts over the years, I think, to try and get that buy-to-let sector under control. And to be fair, there have been some pretty sweeping reforms sure. that have made life more difficult for landlords. Mm. But overall, I just think we are going to always have a housing market which favours owners over renters. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean, of course, that we cannot address the underlying issues of supply versus demand and that fueling demand through things like 95% mortgages yeah. is not going to address the supply. No, and I mean, planning is obviously the only long-term way of addressing supply, presumably, yeah. um, and also reforming a tax system, as, as you've talked about Yes. On the blog, mm. um, the arguments for having um, a land appreciation windfall tax mm. being shared between developer and local authority. Yes. That is a, is a wonderful idea. It used to happen until 1960. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a very persuasive one, but as you mentioned, powerful interests against it. But I think there is probably a glimmer of hope, isn't there, in terms of the 95% policy? Yes. I, I think that it's a little bit simplistic to say that it will just tie lots of young people into expensive mortgages. I do think that there is a risk of that happening. But, you know, I got contacted by lots of younger people yesterday who said, you know, I wouldn't mind that if that gave me a chance mm. to pay down my housing costs over time, if that gave me a chance to get out of rented accommodation, yes. then yeah, yeah, by all means, tie me into this mortgage. But I think that it is the only way that certain people in the country will be able to get on the housing ladder. I think that's true in expensive areas, but also um, it can be a, a, even more of a benefit in the in the cheaper areas, which mm. of course are the Tory government's concern with the red wall, yes. the blue wall. Um, you know, where prices are that much lower, yes. um, it will help give an extra boost to people who probably can just afford their five percent deposit. Yeah, that's right, because yeah. it's going to it's going to be possibly much better for those who are living in those areas where house prices aren't quite so crazy, yep. such as in the north, in Scotland, so. and so on. Yeah. Um, you can't generalise too much, of course, but it also depends on affordability. And yes. you can only borrow so much as a multiple of your earnings as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not going to change. And in fact, you know, that's the whole irony, isn't it? They're sort of pouring fuel on the fire in mm. terms of the market. Yeah. Um, and the people who actually need to, to, to land those mortgages and get those borrowings um, are not seeing their earnings go up to the degree they need to. In yeah. fact, they're probably going to ha have a really tough year and perhaps even lose their job. Well, this is true. This is true. And then that's how it all connects back to the much bigger picture of whether this budget long term is going to encourage that growth, that productivity, mm. that investment within the domestic economy so we can, frankly, grow our way out of the mess that we've been in. It's the only way. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining me for this post-budget analysis. It's a bit like being on Match of the Day, but a much more <laughs> geeky financial version. Really? Well, in that case... <laughs> Hopefully must, an interesting version. I must watch it back then. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks. That's it for this week's podcast. If you've got any feedback, comments or suggestions for the podcast, then I'd love to hear from you. You can email readers at youngmoneyblog.co.uk or you can tweet me at IonaYoungMoney. Make sure you subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you get it. And if appropriate, it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and nice review. We would really appreciate it. And check out the Young Money Blog YouTube channel, where you can watch my full uncut interview with Alice Ross of the Financial Times. And next week on the podcast, I'll be talking to Romy Savova of Pension B. I hope you'll join us then.